Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram, Eric Matthew and Graham Vasey of the North. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Simon. Hello, Eric. Simon, how are you? Very well. And hello, Graham. Hello, how are you doing? Very well. And uh, long-term listeners would understand that reference uh, because episode two of the Large Format Photography Podcast was with Graham Vasey. And uh, Graham Vasey of the North was the title of that podcast. Um, and we said that we wanted to talk more uh, to, to Graham. And after, what, was it almost four and a half years, we've, we've got him back that fast. Um, and uh, so welcome back, Graham. It's great great to see you again. I say see you again. This is the first time I've actually seen you because we didn't have cameras last time. Although at this moment, I don't have a camera, which uh, most people who know on this podcast, uh, I don't have a camera. I get moaned about it every time. But there you go. Sorry about that. Um, but it's great to see you, Graham. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic to be back. Yeah, it's lovely. And I don't think four and a half years, really, because a couple of those years were COVID years, and they don't really count. You're right. So they, they're just... Yeah, no, just, no, it's like a black hole. Out of so it's only been like a year, two at max. So yeah, that's right. it. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll move those years swiftly on. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what what we'll do, like we did last time, I'm going to hand over to Andrew, and Andrew's going to give a a re a, an in depth um, introduction uh, that I've just dropped upon him. So uh, over to you, Andrew. Right. Well, thanks for that, Simon. It's always good to be prepared. So, um, yeah, I, Simon and I both listened to episode two, um, much against my better judgment, really, it was. And Simon shamed me into listening to it by suggesting I wasn't at all professional. And um, so I felt I had to go back. And I'm glad I did, because actually it was a whole lot better show two than, than I remember. We did cover a, a, lo- a load of ground, and um, we'll... We'll see what we can do today. Um, we'll focus on some some of the areas that we spoke about. But Graham, you're a, uh, we spent a bit of time. I don't think we were really um, in jest at the beginning. We were genuinely curious last time because you still describe yourself after all these years as a fine art photographer working in the north um, northeast and something else on Instagram. It says um, traditional. Oh yes, fine art photography and printmaker in the northeast of England using traditional photographic processes to create unique contemporary artwork so um that that's i think pretty much how we introduced you last time you i think you explained you had a background in commercial photography and so you really wanted to um differentiate yourself and um express go down more of the sort of creative path and relationships with the landscape different alternative materials and you know that's what a fine art photographer is somebody who um, uh, separates himself really from that commercial world and is pursuing a more artistic bent that's fair to say isn't it yeah so um, I did a a couple of year stint uh, as a photography assistant uh, uh, working with a couple of photographers in Newcastle Manchester, London uh, Leeds Lotton Leeds but most of it was quite quite good monotonous uh like arts catalogs and uh, like uh, and things like that doing pictures of lampshades and um and stuff like that so i yeah we wanted to um re come back to where i was from and uh, reconnect to the landscape which i grew up with and yeah so that's uh kind of my big drive and my sort of what 
pushing forward my work really is the is, the, is my yeah. surroundings and the landscape yeah. so so any anybody who, who looks at your instagram and instagram remains less place to see your more recent work or your work in total instagram.com graham underscore vazy underscore photography but all of those links will be of course in the show notes we'll show notes show nuts show notes we'll see that you have um a very unique look to your work um and this is oh, in part in part down to uh, the use of uh, silver gelatin uh, liquid emulsion uh, so sort of liquid emulsion painted onto watercolor paper i think in the main so we can perhaps start by exploring that a little bit more for the listeners because we did we did touch on it but we didn't really sort of delve into it into both the whys and wherefores you know the mechanics of the process um how you got into it what you find works what you find didn't explaining what it is why you use it um but you know it, have you been using liquid emulsion constantly since we last spoke over the last four years is it is it been a constant for you or have you oh, been doing other things yes uh, no, uh, i mean i still do um more printing still uh, a little bit and um prints as well i do still do quite a few salt prints but my work is through this okay well, let, well, well let, let, uh, let's start there and then uh, go back into into detail so, um, we spoke briefly before we went live about a book that both you and i have and if readers if listeners can uh, can get a copy it's well worth getting hold of if this is a an area you want to dive into it's called silver gelatin a user's guide to liquid photographic emulsions by martin reed that was who we were trying to remember his name wasn't it martin reed and sarah jones certainly martin reed was one of the guys who was possibly a founder of silver print um, he was certainly heavily involved in uh, silver print um, so this is like the Bible, I suppose, really. It's as far as I know, the only, probably the only book dedicated to this uh, process. But tell us um, your uh, your story with liquid emulsion and and why you use it, how you use it, and well, you know, all so those good was, things. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it was sort of a, a technique which we uh, explored a bit when I was at college at Newcastle College. Uh, one of the tutors, um, Graham Stuffy, was an really was really good at alternative processes and we did a lot of work uh like using cyanotype and liquid emulsion lift printing as well i had a tutor as well jackie she was she was fantastic she did a lot of like um gum prints and things like that as well so we had really lots of information at hand so we did i did bits then and i didn't really do anything with it for a long time then maybe uh well almost be 15 years ago now i was inspired by the the oil painters and things in the gallery that represents me uh, gallerina which is in darlington so I, I became friends with a couple of uh, abstract landscape painters and things uh, one paul denham and i got really sort of interested in how brush looks and things how it okay well sorry we had a few technical issues there um it's a long clearly a long way up north and the telephone wires get a bit stretched all the way up there so uh, either that or graham's uh, on some cheapo uh, um, internet provider so graham sorry you were you were you were explaining just to summarize if uh, if i've got it right you chose you went down a route of liquid emulsion because it giving you that sort of 
it's sort of imperfect look it fits in well with the sort of work that's represented at the gallery um fits in well with how you feel with the landscape you'd explored various other um alternative methods of printing at, at college and over the last 10 years you've been largely working with this process called uh, li- liquid emulsion and i was just saying before we uh, before we had to pause that there is a really good book called silver gelatin a user's guide to liquid photographic emulsions by martin reed and sarah jones if you can find yourself a copy online at a reasonable price it's well worth um well worth getting but graham um tell us then what is liquid emulsion let's 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 ask the real basic question what is liquid emulsion what, what do you do with it how do you use it um how, how does it work for you you know just so give us a liquid emulsion 101 that's probably that's probably what i need to know yeah sure so uh, basically uh liquid emulsion is a silver gelatin based emulsion very similar very similar to what you have already pre-coated onto your photographic paper uh but it's in a, a gelatin form which can when you warm it up become re- becomes liquid again and this allows you to paint it onto a m- multiple different surfaces uh so not only can be painted onto paper it can be painted into glass onto uh like shells stone wood uh all different kinds of materials plaster and once it's been applied under red light conditions uh it basically turns whatever surface into a into a photographic medium so then you can print on it as if it was a piece of photographic paper so by using different uh, mediums to paint it on whether you can use rollers you can use brushes different textured brushes all kinds of things you can apply different uh different textures to the final print that you're creating you can do it very carefully and create something that almost looks like a a, com- a commercially available piece of photographic paper or you can become more abstract with it and uh and become a bit more expressive with larger brush marks and things uh so yeah basically it's it's almost like photographic paper in a bottle you could imagine if you can imagine that and so who, who makes it these days graham there's a couple of different companies that make it. Uh, Rolly, uh, they, they produce uh, a, a number of different um, um, uh, products, including a multigrade version. Uh, there's also a company which has just come back uh, from um, from the blink, where uh, from I almost I think relaunched called Forte, and they've started to create a new one as well, which is based on one of their their old photographic emulsions, which was very very good and then there's another version called which was one that's been around for a long time called black magic that's still going i think you still can get hold of that and there's another one by photo speed which is very good i think that's the same one that used to be used to be able to buy um at silverprint they used to call it se1 uh i think i can't remember the abbreviation is but yeah they can and the one i use mostly uh because it seems to work well for me is um is the FOMA version, uh, which is the same company that make FOMA pan and um, photographic papers and things. Okay. So um, you're primarily painting this liquid emulsion onto watercolour paper, I think, aren't you? And yes. um, this is a very confusing area for anyone dabbling in, getting started into any alternative process, because there's a lot of confusing and conflicting information about different types of paper and um, some quite 
you know, on the face of it, complicated terminologies that are used about the type of paper that might be, whether it's um, uh, sized, which means coated in something to stop the, you know, what either the, the, the liquid emulsion soaking too deeply into the fibers, whether it's unsized. You know, I mean, if one's starting out, is there a is there a paper that you'd recommend or? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, so, uh, so a good quality, uh, what the class is watercolor paper. So all water paper, watercolor paper should basically say is sight. And that basically stops the, when, when people are painting, it stops the, the pigments from bleeding and just becoming like blotting paper. It also gives it a lot of strength and stops it from uh, shrinking and expanding too much as well um, as you wet it. Uh, which is really important as well, because of course, in this process, just like you are doing any kind of conventional uh, darkroom wet print, you'll be you need to develop it in developer, uh, you know, developer fix stop, so stop and fix, and then of course wash as well to wash out all the chemicals. So it has to be quite strong. So quite often I use uh, there's quite a few different companies out there, but uh, Bockingford or those kind of. Uh, um, those kind of papers we can get from really any art shop also a lot of these is good because they're archival they're acid free so there's nothing no chemicals in those papers which could uh, affect the um the long-term life of your print kind of thing it's not going to degrade it's going to degrade your print and it's, it's again if you're depending on the service that you're applying it to say if you're on wood some like some woods have uh, the ph levels different so you've got to be you or oh, you've got to prime that surface to stop the emulsion from sinking in too deep as you're saying or and also stop anything in the wood from attacking the the emulsion so, so most so most off-the-shelf watercolor papers if i walked into wh smith and bought you know i think Lockingford might even be available in wh smith for example wh smith for our american listeners is a high street uh sort of news agent bookseller you know general art supply that sort of thing um that's already got that they generally come sized do they yes yeah yeah oh yeah that's and, otherwise it would just be like um as i say like blotting paper yeah or um, so hanimule i know do a what they call a platinum rag paper for yeah. artistic for alternative processes i know because i've had some before and I, I think that must be sort of uns unsized I don't know actually. No, I think it probably is. It would be to a certain extent because that also the sizing, I say, quite often helps give it strength for right. the processes. Okay. Uh, so, so if, if you're, you're so, and, so you one of the sizing materials you can use would be um, uh, would be um, oh uh, you can use diluted uh, PVA glue. Oh, yeah, so, well, uh, yes, I've, 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 I've used that. Um, yeah. But what's the other one they use? The one that can be used in cooking? Um, um, what's some kind of um, like cornstarch? Oh, yeah. No, but the common. Oh, okay, it's not. Um, oh, I can actually use it to make gelatin, I think. Gelatin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's the one where you mix it with water, don't you, and let it. Yeah. It bloom is that? Is that? Is that the term bloom? Bloom, yes, yeah, yeah. And then paint it on, or, you know. Yeah, usually you would let it bloom, let it cool down and set, and then warm it back up and then coat it. Do you ever use any, mm -hmm. any of those substances? Right. And, but you don't use any of those sort of additional sizing materials in your work? 
Okay. I, I've never, no, I never have. I have once. I usually buy a roll, paper in large, um, meter and a half wide by ten meter long rolls. Uh, okay. Well, cost effective cost. Um, and I did buy some cheapy stuff once that wasn't from a, a brand that I recognised, and it just felt a bit literally hunks coming off the print while I was trying to uh, trying to like print it and things. So it. So. Uh, the, the, there's a couple of things really from what you've mentioned about the the mechanical nature of the process so it's got to be able to withstand the kind of abuse of developing fixing and washing um so that's both the the, the material that's it's coated onto and the strength of the paper but also papers come in different thicknesses don't they marked yeah. up as in grams or something yeah and you get different surfaces as well so yeah. uh, different roughness so the usual one i use is like uh is not uh, which is kind of like a, a softly patterned surface. It's not too heavy, but you can mm -hmm. get so much you're like uh, completely smooth. And um, I usually use what's 300 gram right, yeah. um, weight paper, yeah. uh, which is kind of like a medium, but you can get stuff which is, you know, 400 or so, almost like cardboard really, or you can get stuff which is quite thin, which is down to like, I think 120 gram or 150 gram. Which and does the um, does the the texture of the paper does that affect the whether or not the emulsion is going to start coming off during the washing process? For example, have you uh, found not, not generally no, but it does affect how it um uh, how when you brush it on how it applies. Yeah. So the rougher the texture, the more likely you are to get um like streaks and voids, and you get little sort of uh, textural marks from coming through from the paper itself. And you, you don't mind that, though, do you? No, no, I don't. I quite like that. Uh, I purposely go for that. Uh, okay. But some, but say if I was doing a salt print where I wanted to be more physical contact, like a smoother contact between the negative and the and the sensitized paper, uh, the coated paper, I'd quite often use a smooth finish watercolor yeah. paper, and usually quite something a bit lighter, like a 140, 150 gram, so it'll make better contact. Uh, okay. Yeah. So. So we're, we're we're coating this in the in the dark room under uh, under some kind of dim yeah. red light conditions, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I think a red light, a dim red light, would probably be the way to go because a brown one in that sort of multi contrast spectrum is could be unsafe. But I, I I think red would probably be the way way to go. You, and you and you are you putting the paper onto like a sheet of glass or something to aid the coating or? Uh, I usually stretch it onto uh, wooden boards. So mm -hmm. why? Yeah, so yeah. So in the same way you do with you ever seen someone do watercolor painting, you you wet the paper first, and then you use um, like a, a, a water soluble gum tape, which is like you use wipe the you damp the tape yep. and you mm -hmm. stick stick it down flat when it's still wet on the board. It dries and the paper shrinks and dries perfectly flat. Uh, and then that oh, becomes okay. like you can use then that as your uh, almost like an easel. So I have a couple of big like ten mil or eleven, twelve mil MDF boards. Uh, one's one meter ten by ninety centimeters. One's a little bit bigger, um, which I stretch my paper onto. Oh, big sheet. oh I didn't That's know that. Brilliant. So you're actually physically soaking the paper for very long, or just wetting oh, no, no. it lightly, or? So you're just just damping it so it right. becomes pliable right. and it, they'll lie flat. Um, uh, yeah, that is a that it's a similar method to one I've used quite successfully for drying fiber prints in the darkroom on sheets of glass using that sticky yes. gum tape. 
because it um, dry it, it's one of the unless you've got a heat press it's one of the only methods of drying prints so they've become completely flat but then you have to cut away the it goes all crinkly doesn't it? you have to cut away the um the gum tape at the end so you lose yeah. a bit of your edges of your print anyway yeah, that's, so, that's yeah, the side yeah i leave a margin around the side of the print uh, yeah because the gallery likes to the way they like to display them is to for me to rag the edges of the print anyway so like okay um, yeah yeah uh, like a deck, decal, or you can yeah. even, you can get a, a decal cutter, can't you? To get artistic cuts on the edges. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you can. Something else to look out for. Look out for. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're in a in a big box frame, they float them off the back of the board, so the kind of prints are kind of uh, on all the edges are on show. If you see me, Ralph, then okay. we have to slip yeah. So you've coated. You're in the dark room. You've stretched your paper, um, which is really interesting to hear that you're you're then applying your liquid emulsion are you, so you've got a bottle of this um foam of liquid emulsion are you heating the whole bottle up or are you scooping some of the liquid emulsion out and heating a smaller amount up yeah so over the years i used to just heat the whole bottle up and just pour out what i needed but um it does degrade the emulsion after a while and quite and, and so especially if you get like one of the larger motion bottles from foam you can get up to like one kilo bottles like uh, tubs um and now scoop it out with a plastic spoon it's really important that not to use metal uh be any kind of steel because in your brushes or your stirring implements and things like that because they the metal will react with the uh, silver nitrate and you can it'll fog it so right. uh so i use a plastic spoon to um to scoop out what I need, I then put that in almost like in a, say like a bain marie, so like a a plastic tub inside a slightly larger plastic tub filled of hot water, and then stir yep. it till it becomes dissolved, becomes becomes it melts. Okay, and then I can just use, um, then I can just dip a brush into that, and that becomes my. Uh, I know you. Um, so you've already touched on the fact that for for artistic reasons, which we'll delve into in a little bit. Uh, you you you're not too worried about whether you get a nice even coating. So are you using sort of horizontal brush strokes followed by vertical, and then do you keep going over it, or do you just do one way and then the other way and call that call that uh, done? Uh, it depends on the print. Sometimes, uh, quite often, I do definitely. I always do a uh, vertical and then horizontal, um, but then quite often I I try and like create more brush marks and work into the print a little bit. So if, for instance, like into the skies, try and get some uh, movement, some like uh, sort of swirling brush marks and things, okay. uh, I'll, I'll try and to be a bit more expressive in that sense uh, or, you know, try and um, yeah, manipulate the, uh, the, the, the emulsion as it dry as, 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 as I am applying it. Yeah. So do you keep brushing it as it, as it dries. Cause you can get bubbles form as well. Can't you? I've noticed that I've not done much of this, but I did have trouble with bubbles. Yeah. Um, yes, you can get to, but if you want bring the cross hatches usually. And then, then brushing over, usually get rid of the most of them. Right. I mean, sometimes um, I don't get so much problem with bubbles on the very large prints. It's the smaller ones where I start to get bubble problems because mm. you're applying sort of more emulsion to a yeah. small area. Yeah, yeah, that could be it because mine have mine have been very small, really. You know. Yeah, yeah. When you get to a lot, these when you do these larger prints, because I'm 
moving the brush around much more it seems to dry a bit sort of right. flatter okay um, so you've okay so you've coated your paper and you then how, how do you, do you if you want to ever escape the dark room <laughs> and you haven't got a rotating door presumably you're putting these paper in uh in a box or something are you well uh because it's already secured to a big board i can literally lean it against the I lean it against the cupboards in my dark room and then just box in the side, right. cover it up with a big cloth, and then right. sneak out behind the curtain uh, into out of the right. I make sure as well that all the doors in my hallway are, are shut. So that all, yeah. there's no there's a little, as little external light coming in as I possibly can make it. But I think as long as it's um, the board is away from the light, and it's all it's all covered over. It seems it, I've never had any problems with fogging. So okay, so Simon has well, a question for you, Graham. Yeah, I've, I've just 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 to take things back a, a, a touch. I'm just thinking about uh, those people listening that uh, are, that don't really t- know too much about the dark room. Um, you you said something there about um, swirling the emulsion for the sky, and um, and I think it's just just worth. Talk, talking about 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 that part of the process because it's it all sort of indicates that you know you know where the sky is but you haven't actually applied you haven't, you haven't actually used the enlarger at this point so that you're just so you're swirling something on a blank piece of paper ah all right you see uh, well what I usually do beforehand is once the paper's stretched I should have said this is I um, mark out the edges of my print. So I project down onto the paper uh, from my enlarger, which, so what I usually do is my, it's, it's really old fashioned um, uh, enlarger I have. It's on a big round metal column. So I can swing it uh, 180 degrees. So to get the big prints, I have to, I, my, my, my enlarger's on the worktop. I turn the baseboard round and then swing the enlarger so it's projecting onto the floor. So mm-hmm. the board's on the floor. Uh, with the paper stretched onto it, I then can mark out the the, the dimensions of the print uh, just by literal pencil on the corners, and that gives me an idea of where to my print will be. And then it's about a matter of because uh, I've already measured out and worked out where the print is. Then it's a bit of sort of imagining, bit of trying memory of trying to imagine what portions of sky, what portions of land, how the flow of the image goes, and then trying to um, imagine what I'm doing, basically. So it's a little bit of serendipity. There's a little bit of um, unknown. So I never 100% know exactly how every print's going to go because you you can't really, you don't really see 100% where your emotion's going. You, it's, yeah. There's always going to be a little bit of a surprise in there. So, yeah. And that, and that ultimately, that adds to the look of your your prints anyway. As you say, you 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 deliberately don't make them as perfect as you can with the way that you're applying the um, the, the the emulsion. So where you're where you're making those the emphasis within the print and the, the shape of the of your brush strokes not being it not being precise, that just adds to the to the look that you're trying to achieve. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, one one other thing, because I know that uh, Eric has now raised his hand, so uh, I'll, I will make way shortly. Um, and that is, uh, are you going to give way to the honourable gentleman? I, I, I will be giving way to the honourable gentleman shortly. Um, <laughs> and um, oh, I may have a cup of tea coming in, so I may have to wait a little bit longer. Yeah, here's my cup of tea. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. So um, and that's 
just going back to the photograph that we used on uh, episode one, was this connected? Um, episode, sorry, episode two. two. Episode two, sorry. Um, which uh, it was a picture of uh, sky, and uh, and it met, and funny enough, the sky is very very interesting uh, because it looks like you've spilt a cup of coffee. Uh, over over the sky elements of the of the landscape, it's a picture of uh, a valley and hills, and it's got some sky in it on the Isle of Sky, and uh, it has a coffee coffee coloured sky. And I'm just wondering um, what, what what happened there. Was that was was that serendipitous, or were you going for this uh, this multi tone view? That was serendipitous. So basically, uh, uh, sometimes when you um, if you have too much of a buildup of the emulsion, it becomes quite a thick layer. And the way I have to, the way I uh, develop the prints, uh, it, it's quite difficult to get the stop to completely uh, remove to, to uh, all the, the developer. And so if there's any developer left sort of unstopped, is that the right way to describe it? We get unneutralized by the stop. Uh, when it comes to fix it, it will go quite a rusty brown. So quite often, if you have like thicker parts on the prints, you have thicker areas of um, of um, of this of the of the emulsion, uh, sort of a build for the emulsion on the surface of the paper. You will get these stains, and uh, and I've kind of that was in the early days. I got a lot more of that, and I've kind of figured out how to uh, minimize, if not eliminate that. Uh, in the in the, in the process, uh, but there are times when I kind of want to recreate it, and uh, so it's yeah. And even I've gone to the point of using like uh, pigments and things uh, to tone parts of the image to create recreate that in a more controlled manner, where I know I can see what what's happening, where it's going, sort of thing. Yeah, well, it, it's it's it looked great. And, yeah, and that's and that's. Uh, that's that's why it ended up on the on on the cover, and I've I have to I've got to make a confession to all our listeners now, which is going to be quite shocking. Um, but that 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 photograph was not actually taken with a large format camera; it was taken with your Hasselblad, which you told yeah. us at the time. But yeah. uh, it was a case of I'd done I'd done the artwork by then, and I was thinking, "But that's a great photo. I want to keep it." So we just thought, "I know, we just won't tell anyone." Um, so, <laughs> so the whole so show's you. built on a lie, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, so there, there we go, um, uh, Eric. Over, over to you. Um, actually, I got a bunch of questions, but. We'll, we'll just I'll, I'll I'll keep the first ones to the actual preparation process, and then I'll ask other questions later. But how, what's the largest one of these prints that you've done? I mean, if you're swinging the enlarger off the table and projecting it onto the floor, um, let's start with what's the biggest print like this that you've done, and how much liquid emulsion do you go through? <laughs> Or like a print this size, especially like, oops, well, that was a mistake. I guess I have to do that again. You know, you no, go into gallons of this stuff, or uh, it's not as bad as you think. Actually, that it, it, it can cover quite a lot of um, each print. Um, say the average size is probably uh, between so eighteen cent eighty so eighty by seventy centimeters or. One meter by seventy centimeters, kind of scale, um, okay. and that's kind of the average. The biggest one I've ever managed to do is, I think, one meter about ninety centimeters, or so, one meter by one meter ten. Uh, and I don't know how much. I can't figure. I don't can't remember what that is in inches. But then at that point, I'd hit the ceiling with me enlarger, 
Um, <laughs> and I, I basically to develop these, I, I created a, a big tube, uh, a made from a piece of eight inch uh, drain down pipe. You know, you have on the mm -hmm. side of the house uh, with inspection caps, um, epoxy resin onto either end, so you can unscrew them and slide the paper in and pour chemicals in. And that's, I think, that's one meter, or just over one meter long. So that's about that's as much paper as a good just roll up and shove in. I say, which is not small for for the Americans out there. That's about three foot by three foot. Oh um, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is, yeah. I got you, I got you. Yeah, so it's giant. I remember like a four foot by three, then so roughly about. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's which is big. I remember there's um, uh, I'll I'll look up his name and put it in the show notes. But there's a, a gentleman here in the Bay Area who's using um, color paper. And he just bought a giant roll of it, you know, like industrial size roll. They're like six foot, so two meter, you know, or so yeah. in in width. And he converted his trailer, a tow behind trailer, into a giant pinhole camera. And he would just take these massive sheets of color paper inside the, the trailer. And then he would go and take these ridiculously huge pinhole images. And then he would he had a, a massive, just like you do. But he used like these massive metal tubes, um, and show these. I saw these uh, video of him developing it, and he just had a warehouse space that he worked in, and he was just like walk back and forth, like fifteen feet each direction, you know, like five meters each direction, just rolling this huge tube stop, roll it back, um, just ridiculousness because of just how big the paper was, and he had a warehouse space, so I was curious, like. In your flat, you know how how much space you have. It's an It's a print. It's um actually uh, this. It's my my dad is a king photographer, and that's how I kind of got into photography myself. So the, my dad and my mum and dad allowed me to convert what was my old bedroom in my mum and dad's house, my parents' house, not far away from where I live now, into a dark room. So, but it's only um it's what is it about. Oh, it's not very big. It's probably 12, 12 foot by 12, something like 10, you know, something like that. Yeah. It's not massive. It's not a massive space. Uh, that's why I kind of made the roll. So I've got like a six foot long dark room sink and that almost butts up against the door on one wall. And then the other wall, I've got about 10 foot long of cabinet space with three enlarges on it. So, yeah. And then that, oh, then this little gap where shove loads of rubbish. So <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. And then for you know when you're talking about tinting some of the prints, have you ever thought about or do you ever like? Because the first color photos were just they're they're either by by chrome or trichrome, but basically they were in some ways they're also hand painted. Have you ever thought about as you're finishing these prints, just going back in and and painting colors on them you know or doing anything for colorization i've done uh, a couple of the, the i've been working on this uh, series called uh, uh dane for a number of years uh, which is all based on folklore and um and they're all uh using five four in, uh, sheet film and they're all um in camera multiple multiple exposures 
And but I've been experimenting with those using like red tints and orange and different colors and things like that. And uh, more sort of a general wash rather than tinting sort of individual things within them. Like you know, like you did with um like when you see those black and white pictures with where an orange red the cranes painted in red again, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, more sort of just general washes and stuff trying to get different effects. Cool. I like it. And yeah. if nobody else is continuing with questions, I certainly have more questions. Um, well, so my no, real question no, I, actually would, go ahead. No, no, after you, Andrew. Sorry, I should have raised my hand enough. Forget, forget, <laughs> yeah, myself. Yes. I'm sorry. Um, Simon or Eric, do you have any more questions on this sort of, we've sort of covered this process up to sort of selection of paper, coating, um, planning where the image is going to be projected. Because we, I think folks listening would realize by now this isn't, um like cyanotype where you're or salt prints where you're contact printing the negative against the um against the paper this is you know you're projecting the image from the enlarger so we've 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 covered that uh, uh, do, do you guys have any more sort of general questions on the um on, on the on the mechanics of it uh no not right now no no so graham what about um what, what so you you, cho- you choose this method because it gives because it's not perfect yes and i think you you said something back in show two four years ago or four and a half years ago or two years ago or maybe even a year ago depending if you count covid or not that this fits in well with how you and i'm paraphrasing i can't quite remember the exact word you use you said something about uh, or something like your relationship to the local environment where you live and how this process works with that with the kind of images that you produce so i'd just like you to expand on that sort of idea really if you don't mind yeah sure uh so um my, my dad was a history teacher and he was he's always been extremely uh, passionate about archaeology and uh and so growing up i had a lot of books in the house which were to do with like abandoned villages and how the landscape's been made and things because you got to remember that especially in the northeast uh the landscape and like most of england really the landscape's always been sort of created by man it's kind of or at least you know man has been symbiotic within the landscape it's it's created part of it but part of the, the landscape's also dictated what people can do so around here there's a lot of been a lot of heavy industry a lot of mining uh, a lot of quarrying um, and all those are left indelible scars on the landscape. And some of these have been going on for centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and nature's reclaimed those to a certain extent. So um, my pictures try to reflect that. So I try to look at the landscape as um, as a historical document almost. So um, I like the idea that these working to these images created these textures uh, that kind of help expose that. So you're kind of looking just beyond just the, the picture that you see. You're looking, uh, in, you know, this uh, uh, beyond the kind of um, the kind of like the picturesque, perfect landscape, which is kind of quite often your uh, is depicted by a lot of landscape photographers sometimes. Uh, but it's it's a bit more. There's more going on. There's that there are elements that this is um this is a working landscape or has been a working landscape so uh yeah so that's kind of one of the reasons why i kind of like it is because it ha- lets me express 
um, um, more than just um, um, just a, a straight picture, if you see what I mean. If that makes sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, because, you know, if it's just a just a straight landscape, I mean, it's just a straight landscape. Not that there is such a thing. No, no, but, I love the straight know. landscapes. I'm not, yeah, yeah, but yeah. It, but but there's a but there's an undercurrent to it you know there's there's a reason for the images and it's it's it sort of veers a little bit into fine art documentary if you will yes yeah uh and so the and that's where this dane series came from is kind of it, uh there's a lot of landscape you cannot see it's it's invisible uh but this is it's recorded in place names and uh folklore uh the stories of the landscape and things so i wanted to create kind of create a narrative within my pictures so i started doubling up double exposing to try and get these kind of depths so using still life with landscape and etc to kind of create more uh to to, to ex show the stories and the and the history of the place rather than again because uh, so much of it is just uh, like a name on a map and spoken words right. or things being written about it's difficult to interpret that in just one picture do you ever dig into the actual um just out of curiosity because you just talk about like looking at the names on a map do you ever actually dig into like the history of those names or maybe where the different parts of those names came oh from definitely yeah, yeah. the piece yeah yeah definitely i i uh, i do a lot of research a lot of um uh before to go to these places so i i usually do look at online and look at historical books that I have. Uh, uh, so there's a, about the folklore, so um, and about um, history. So I've done a lot of research into like the, the mining of the Northeast and uh, the lead mines of, of Teesdale, which is very close to where I live. Uh, there's a big area called Cockfield Fell, uh, which I've took, I mean, Andrew visited a long time ago, and that's really a unique place. Um, and it's it, it was so heavily ravaged by coal mining during the 19th century that they they didn't think it was worth anything so they never enclosed it it was kept as like a, a as an op, a common land for the for, for the village so they still the villages still have these things called stints so they have like a right to use the common land to rear their sheep and their horses on so you get all these really crazy uh shanty kind of sheds all over mm. all over the place and then you got prehistoric uh ditches and then you've got these medieval bell pit coal mines which are like some of the earliest coal mines ever in the uk so you go and it's the same way uh again near where andrew lives there's a place called grimes graves and it's all these what they call bell pits and what these these in the neolithic they were digging down into the into the uh, the vertical shaft down into the chalk to find flint to turn to axes and and it left these very defined uh, marks in the landscape, which are like, it looks like a donut with a, mm -hmm. with a hole in the middle, like a ring donut. And uh, this was the kind of, like, when they dug down, they just put the spoil beside on the, around the hole. And they did in exactly the same way they dug for coal on this fell uh, in the in the Middle Ages and uh, early modern period, sort of 16th century. So you have this really kind of, very complex landscape which uh yeah so I, I do an awful lot of research i love finding old books as well um like little uh journals and things and um 
natural history books and things of, of the area because you find lots of little first-hand stories and things and uh, little bit snippets of folklore which some have been sort of lost over the years. Cool. I found, I found um, working in the working photographically in the fens. Um, I, I developed much more of a connection with the landscape by. So it rang a bell, really, what you're saying. So I, I started, you know, reading books on the draining of the fens and the history and the violence that went on as the Dutch tried to drain the fens and and that sort of. I guess it's the same for you where you are. You go out into the landscape armed with all that knowledge sort of floating around your head and it it um it's not lost on you, is it, when you're out in the landscape trying to make the work no, it no, yeah, exactly. it, infor it informs yes. the way you work. Yeah, exactly. And it inf and uh it gives greater depth and meaning to what you try when you do see something and like those isolated farmhouses and things which you uh, like and cottages, which you photograph, Andrew. It's yeah. you, you kind of ha can't help but be um, drawn to those kind of things because you just wonder about what was life like to live there. What did those people do? You know, why did they choose to live there, and why did they choose not to live there anymore? And he, and it's like again in Teesdale and Weirdale near me, there's dozens and dozens of abandoned farms, like hill farms, which are just some of just. You can almost look like you could walk into and live in some of just piles of ruins, but you can't help but imagine what people's lives were like and how they how they lived and things. So, yeah, it, it's it it's really it's, it gives a little poignancy to the landscape. Yeah. Um. So, uh, what was I going to say to you? Sorry, I just got distracted by Simon or somebody messaging me. Maybe it was Eric. Uh, very unprofessional. Um. <sighs> Goodness me. I don't know what I was going to say now, but um, I'll go back to what I raised my hand for a little while ago. Um, you mentioned Dane series, I think, and I, I just went back onto your Instagram and see that it's a word that's mm, curiously spelt D-A-I-N-N with some little accents on top of it. And the one image that I was looking at, and you mentioned double exposure, I think we touched on the use of ravens before but i can't remember how much we spoke about it but you it, this seemed to be for a time at least a lot of a constant theme you and probably stuffed birds yes um, yeah. and and I'm, I'm looking at i'm looking at this image from a, a while ago um raven on a post double exposed with a tree through its body and landscape in the background and you call it the dane series what's what, what just it's to tell me a bit about that my uh, i've always been fascinated by um uh the danish culture the nordic culture that exists in, oh, okay. the, in the dales and the yorkshire dales and things so yeah. uh, the routines is kind of the boundary between what was dane law to the south yorkshire and the anglo-saxon kingdom of northumbria uh or earldom to the to the north and it's really strange that on one side the river Tees, you have uh Saxon place names or place names that sound very Scottish, like uh, Egglesburn and things like that. And on the south of the River Tees, you have still have uh, what's Becks and um, Gills and uh, things like that, which so they're more Scandinavian in origin. And so I've always been fascinated by that. I tried to do a big project on it when, um, like, a more of a photojournalism project, trying to discover if I could any kind of 
remnants of this uh, Nordic culture in the in in the north, and and it is kind of it was doing this that inspired me to do the Dane series because I realised that you couldn't read really, it's very difficult if impossible to encapsulate that in just a conventional picture like a not you needed to bring more elements into that picture to try and create a story. Um, so Dane is like a I think it's it, it's it's one of the stags on uh the astral the world tree and oh yeah and i think it or, and it may mean death as well so when the first ones i did were all like skulls and stuff and then i did other things and the raven and things it's obviously that's you know for you know um um odin had his ravens and stuff and mm-hmm. yeah and uh so yeah so i used i had a, a good friend who was a taxidermist i've got a good friend um pony and he would lend me stuff, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I had like a fox head that was belonged to me, my mum and dad, which I used that for one called uh, uh, Foxwood. And the first one I did, the first ever one in that series was called Mirkwood, which was a big stag's skull and a piece of ancient woodland that's in a uh, re- last patch of ancient woodland in Teesdale. Really strange place. It's all boggy underground. There's lots of like um, uh, birch and uh oak trees which are all twisted and gnarled and this poor you know really uh stunted growth kind of things and so the mirkwood comes from um uh, william morris and it was kind of like a his translation of a of an anglo-saxon term for the kind of the dark forest the, the kind of and he, he played into his work and so i borrowed that and created this Mirkwood. And then from that, I created Foxwood. And mm. then the Raven. Um, and then i done another one. One was called Kirk Carrion, which is a ridge in Teesdale, which on the halfway up the summit, there's um, uh, an, uh, a clump of trees, which was a barrow, a Bronze Age barrow. And I did a lot of research into Celtic cultures, and and um uh, deities and things and i found that uh a lot of this in the northwest and northeast of england they found i closely discovered a lot of effigies of like a ram's headed uh rammed horned god kind of and so are you and but and rams are what we call up here tups uh still it's still a real pride thing of teasdale is still quite famous teasdale is very famous for its top breeding for these big rams that they produce um so i kind of incorporate that ram's horn into the picture so you have this bronze age barrow on the summit of this hill and then you have this ram's horn so it kind of links back into prehistory and into what is the a common you know there's still a, a vibrant part of uh, society and culture in in teasdale Mm. I think what w- w- all this tell w- how how this speaks to me, and I'm sure it's coming across for the listeners, is the value in just living and dwelling in a landscape. You know, the the, the photographic benefits of just immersing yourself. If, if landscape photography, in whatever form it is, is your cup of tea, then immersing yourself in your local environment, researching, reading books. Um, finding out about the past and engaging with your local environment perhaps can really reinvigorate your photography. Oh, 100%. Uh, 
Andrew Sanderson actually produced a great book. I got it for my dad, and it was just about taking pictures around your own home and yeah. such beautiful work. And and it was all and I think it's 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 getting to know your environment and the light and how it moves and changes throughout the day is really important, I think. And I found the last uh ten years my sort of the scope of my pictures has become smaller and smaller and smaller. So once upon a time it was always, you know, all I wanted to do was be up in the high, go to Scotland, go to the sky, go to the Outer Hebrides, or go to the Lake District. Um but over the last, you know, the last 10 years, it's become more and more just about the landscape around me. And I think as well, once you start to go beyond um, past the roadside, you know, beyond into the landscape, into that hinterland of the land and, and the, of, the, of, of, of what's around you, then it, it, you see it in a totally different way. So, um you know, because I think as well, when you go visiting as uh, somewhere, say, spectacular as Glencoe, you you can be almost uh, you could accidentally find yourself just following other people's tripod marks, yeah. you know, and just taking the same pictures of other people. It, it you know you need to it because you you see some you've seen a picture of something, you go, wow, that's amazing, I want to go there, and you go there, and you. And it's very easy to think, oh, I'm just going to take that picture, and yeah, and and it's and it's still going to be a wonderful picture, but it doesn't. Have you really got the best out of that landscape you could have, in a, in a way? You've just you just hit upon something there that um, one of our very early guests, uh, Stephen Segersby, um, he yeah. was he made very very similar points. Um, I mean, when it, I, I still remember it now. It was he would tell the tale about taking some photographs in the Forest of Dean. Uh, in in the UK, and and, and he would, it, it was almost like becoming one with the place um, that that you're in, and and you know there'd be times where you know if if he was in that state, I mean I'm, I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing really badly now. Sorry if you're still listening to this, Stephen, but if you if you're basically being a, being at one with the place, and uh, you know in the, almost like with the spirits almost um, with 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 the place, then you you connect in a in a completely different way. And I think you, what you're saying there is very very similar to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It. And um, I think as well one of the big sort of pinnacle moments in my photographic uh, life, really was I did a workshop with Bill Schwab, uh, the American landscape photographer, uh, to Iceland. And it was it was an amazing trip because it was me and Tim Rudman as well. It's going to name drop here because there's no entire time. <laughs> and Paul Hannum and things like that. And and, and there was some, uh, some amazing photographers. And we did like 10 days, did a full loop, the full loop of Iceland to down to Vic, to Hup, and uh, then ended up on uh, Skalfal Nest right on the... Uh, the north east coast of Iceland, and um, but what I really learned from it, what from everyone there, particularly Bill, was like how to immerse yourself into that landscape. It's not just about you know he he would quite often as well just put in a pair of earphones and of something and just you know, you, you know really just immerse himself into the environment and almost shut himself and create like a a story of it all and and to, to to kind of and get expression that way so yeah i would definitely yeah definitely agree with that yeah one, one other thing there i mean we've we've not actually talked about large format as such uh 
and and that's exactly what you get with large format photography generally speaking unless you've got a uh, one of one of steve lloyd's chroma snapshot cameras where you can walk around with a, a four by five camera but you know it seems to me that a photograph takes a fast photograph with large format takes about 15 minutes for me and and in that time you know you just you, you don't rush you 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 compose carefully or you try to at least uh, but in the meantime you i think just by doing things more slowly you just take in what's going on around you not nowhere near to the kind of depth that you're talking about here or with or or, or Stephen Sagersby for that matter um and Greg Obst as well it's it's a bit of a, bit of a thread going on there um and um yeah I, th- I think it just lends itself to be more open to what's going on in your environment oh definitely yeah yeah you kind of um you kind of make that commitment to go to that place as well i think and it, it gives you that um uh like yeah and then you when you arrive you spend your, you can spend your time setting your camera up and that just gives you that chance to breathe and to um really soak up your surroundings and really sort of uh, start to figure out what you're going to do and and quite often you know what you think you're going to take is not what you take in the end you kind of end up moving around a bit trying to get that composition right and uh uh, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It, it, uh, there's something lovely about that, that thought, that um, that method of just you know once you've got your dark cloth over you, over you as well, of, and just you can really uh, focus in on what you're doing and where you are. Yeah. I remember I did a years ago. I was up in a place called Flushy Mere near me, and and I'd spent I was probably about about half an hour, an hour just watching what was going on, waiting for some clouds to move over, and that time was sort of a farmer driving sheep for down further from the hills and like all this weather moving in and it was just felt and uh i thought i came back down and i bumped into this farmer again and and yeah we were just chatting about and he was going oh it's it, it's you know uh what did he say i can't think what he said now it's just like he said oh it's a right day it's sort of thing he's he even he was the same thing he was just just loved that environment that he was in and it was just yeah this felt felt fantastic yeah. yeah. Well, I th- I think that um, like last time we had you on, um, there were plenty more things we wanted to talk about, and uh, and I think we're going to have to do do what we said again uh, because we're pretty much coming to the end of our our time uh, for for today. So uh, hopefully, in another four and a half years, we can get you back on again. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'd um, yeah. I mean, I've got to go shortly, but. It's up to you guys, really. But Graham is um, this probably doesn't come across on his Instagram. But I, I went to I, I went to I've met Graham a few times. I went to his house, and he'd just taken delivery of this old cine camera. I call it a cine camera. I can't actually remember what it was. I think he wound it up or something, and he had and I think he'd gone and bought like a load of film. I can't remember the full story, but um, he's since gone into the whole world of movie making. Not just movie making, but it, it branches off from his love and feel for that landscape, you know. And folk horror, uh, it's a it's a really interesting area to explore. And I'm not really suggesting we go into it now, but uh, and it's not really anything to do with large format, but it's just really interesting. Right, it uses a lot of film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm currently I've got a as it's a cine camera. It is a cine camera. It's a 16 millimeter cine camera made by Enzyme, uh, which yeah. were 
which were a British camera company, and they produced the the cine cameras before the war, before the Second World War, and then they think the factory in in London, where it was, uh, got bombed, and they didn't bother to rebuild it. I think so. It's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a brute. It definitely comes into the stupid, uh, stupid, stupid big camera category. I think yeah. it weighs about two or three kilos. I um, think we'll, we'll we'll explore it another time because yeah, we'll it's, it's, another to, do it, to do it justice when I'm going to be rushing off in five or ten minutes, yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's not going to be worth. And it's not it's not so much it's not so much large format. But I mean, we've we've been speaking over this interview really about process and ideas, and I think you know this the, your your lurch into into um, into folk horror based in the landscape where you are and some of the shorts that I've seen sort of tie in with your whole approach to landscape photography. So I think it, it's kind of valid and it's maybe um, when we get you back on in, um, uh, you know, in four years' time, we'll, uh, um, we'll, yeah. we'll explore that. Definitely. Yeah. So sorry for beginning that segue and then no, stopping, no. stopping you. Uh, <laughs> you leaving listeners. Leaving listeners. Yeah. That's the problem. Um, we should. Well, I think we should do a live show. That's what we should do. We should do a live show. Well, that's Simon meeting. wants to do lots of live shows. Um, well, not about live shows, but on location shows, don't you, Simon? Since your, since your last visit, me Andrew, there's a brewery bit opened up in my village, so <laughs> we've got tap room. Right. Okay, Simon. I mean, I'll fire over there. <clears throat> I was I was just going to say, Eric. Uh, I, I know that you had all the questions there, but is there any, anything you've, uh, you've you've got to get off your, off your chest while we've still got grain with us? With a phlegm or something? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I am <laughs> eternally curious about things like using this type of medium in the camera instead of in the dark rooms, like using liquid emulsion and um, various, like say, the watercolor paper or some other medium, and actually shooting it in camera and like sort of the mechanics and the possibilities of that, but that's a whole different longer topic. Um, so but that's where my brain goes. Like, hey, can we make our own paper well, negative? Presume, our own, presume, like, presumably you could, because it would probably have the same speed as, you know, ISO two, three, four, five, six. It'd probably be yeah. around there, wouldn't it? So it'd be the exactly. same. You could use it. In that book, I think there's, uh, they just talk about glass plates, uh, using the emulsion to coat onto black glass plates and okay. create your own, Sort of um, dry plates, if you, you imagine. Yeah, but with with yeah. that, I'm always terrified because with that, with the smooth mediums like like glass, you have to sublim- you have to put the gelatin on it, and if you don't do it right, you like put it in the developer and just watch the whole thing float up off the glass. And yeah. no, and that, whereas with paper, theoretically, you know, it'll sink into the paper and the paper will absorb it better, and that whole step of you know, having to put a gelatin emulsion, either the the cheap stuff you get from the grocery store or the photo-specific stuff is sort of skipped. And I am sloppy in most of my methodologies, so anything that I can skip that would be disastrous would be great. Actually, that, that's a just a technical point there. Um, and I'm going all over the place after what you've just, just, just said there. I um, do my best. Yeah. Um, two, two parts to this question. When you actually... Uh, expose the uh, the paper that's had the uh, silver emulsion applied to it. Is it is it still? Does it have to be still wet? Or oh is it no, it's dried. It's, it's, it's got to dry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That, that, so, that that's good. Yeah. Um, uh, and then so so the the other the other part to that because I was thinking myself, well, actually, uh, 
uh, coating some paper, then it's it's how you get that into a into a film holder because it's going to be su- substantially thicker than film. And I was thinking, well, you could you could use a dry plate or a, a a wet plate holder, and just just find a way of just clamp clamping it down. So yeah, I like the idea of that. That sounds fun. Yeah, right. Now that I have a darker, I should probably get around to doing that. Yeah, Graham, can I just ask one supplementary question back onto the process before we wind down fully? It's yeah. about the washing as well, because I was never really sure. When I did my last, I, I had, I've got some of this black magic stuff, which has been lurking in my darkroom for about five years, and I tested it last year, and it still works. And I got a nice print. It, it, the emulsion started to lift away. I think I washed it and washed it to death. Maybe I washed it for too long, because the emulsion at one point started lifting. And at that point, I stopped the washing, and the emulsion resettled down onto the paper. And it almost looked like a um, an emulsion transfer, you know, not a or polarized lift. That's what it looked like, where you lift the emulsion off and lay it onto uh, watercolor. So I quite liked it. It wasn't what I was after, but is that because I was washing for too long? I mean, how long is too long? And should should you use a hardening fixer, a non-hardening fixer? What what do you what do you do? Um, I generally use. Um, um, Fixer I use generally is Photospeed, uh, the FX30, which is their odorless. I think it's a non-hardening. Yeah, uh, I think it's just a general general fixer, fixer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and generally, I sort of wash it for like it would uh, a um, fiber-based paper. So, do you use any hypo clear in there to reduce the washing times? Uh, no, generally I don't. Generally I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I find as well, maybe because it's a it's uncoated, in a, in a sense that it's like most photographic papers, even what uh, fiberspace paper, they've got a coating over the top. You've got to remember that uh, the liquid emulsion you've, you've got no coating. It's literally emulsion, and then it's um, then the pe- and the paper. So I find it does the chemicals wash out of it quite quickly. Um, uh, uh, stop it. Stop so how it. long? In your experience, so bear in mind you're selling these things to a gallery, so you wouldn't want to sell it to someone and then it kind of faded within like a week. <laughs> How long are you um, – you obviously satisfy yourself that you're yeah. processing these things to as good a standard as you can because you're selling oh, yes. them. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, what what sort of um, fixing and washing times are you, are you uh, talking so about? Fixing times is usually about four minutes. Right. Okay. doing it in the tube. Uh, one to nine, one to nine ratio. It's yeah. usually expired by the time I finish mm-hmm. um, that, and then wash for at least thirty minutes to wow, 40, okay. thirty minutes, something like that. Mm. Usually, because they're so big, I usually have it in the bath, <laughs> and then I, halfway through, I empty out the water and refill it a bit, and just, right. just wash it that way through like kind of a, a soaking method, if you see what I mean. And um, you. Uh, a print um, discolor on me, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah, but so do you ever get the emulsion lifting off then, like I had? Or I wonder now the type of emulsion I, I was using. Sorry, once twice I have. Uh, sorry, uh, once twice I have uh, mm. to a certain extent. Uh, I didn't. The throat depend depends on which emulsion you get because some emulsions you need to buy what's called a hardening agent. Yeah, uh, the foamer comes with a hardening agent. Right. Um, I don't think the SE one maybe having a, an, uh, the photo speed one maybe has a hardening agent involved. And basically, it's just like um, uh, a liquid that you add in when it's dilute, when you melted the emulsion, uh, and when it's liquid, you put a couple of drops into this, and it it, it helps it. Uh, yeah, I've got a bottle of hardener I bought from somewhere. 
and I can't remember why I bought it, but I've got it, and maybe that's the same sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then it, it, it kind of makes it a bit more uh, resilient to the washing process and things. Right. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that. No problem. Okay, Simon. well, in that case, I'll just do the uh, the usual things um, on our way out, and they are... Here we go. Uh, coffee donations. Um, thank you very much, um, because we've we've had a couple of donations come in, which, which really Ooh. helps us uh, get the podcast going. And uh, two donations. Uh, one is from uh, Ray Agren. I think that's how you say your name, or Agren, maybe. Uh, great podcast. I'm truly enjoying the content and the banter. So, well, thank you very much, Ray. Uh, appreciate that. And uh, and now I think we have um, a level two um, donor, uh, because we have Daniel S- uh, Sandland, who were uh, keen listeners, we remember, uh, back in May. He also uh, donated to us, and uh, he's left us a message uh come on open up here we go um as eric said uh hope is a wonderful thing um it's great that you came out with a new episode recently um and i'm hoping for more this year the lfpp <laughs> is the perfect companion in the darkroom and when setting up a camera it really helps me get in the mood well thank you very much daniel i'm glad we, we help with that cool. and uh okay so uh, let's just go around the table now and just say, has anybody go, got any shout-outs? And I'll start with you, Graham. Um, I think people should look up the Sustainable Darkroom, uh, which is a fantastic uh, uh, group, which has lots of amazing workshops. Uh, Lo-Fi Edinburgh, which is fan- another fantastic uh, uh, group, um, do loads of fantastic things. And... Uh, and to Helen, my lovely new wife. Mm. <laughs> Congratulations, <Smart> man. <laughs> uh, Andrew, any shout outs? Well, I'm shamed after years of not doing this because Eric does it all the time. I have to shout out to my uh, uh, my long standing lovely wife, Julie, of 33. And what year is it? 30, <laughs> 33 years, maybe 34. One of those, anyway. That's the sort of nonsense she has to put up with my not remembering dates properly. And uh, I think we should also shout out, before we started, we, um, we've we all got slightly different versions or different books by the American Fred Picker, and we've spoken about Fred before. His, his name has come up in various interviews we've had, But uh, and I've got a book called The Zone 6 Workshop, and I think Graham's got a book called The Fine Print, I think, which he mentioned yeah. if you go back to episode two, and, and Simon's just bought a book, and Simon never buys books. Uh, which is also similar, but we're not quite sure whether we've all got the same book. Um, but we, I think we probably all recommend books by Fred Picker, who I don't think is with us today, but uh, I think he might be an ex-Fred Picker. Okay. Spirit, uh, formerly known as Fred Picker. Yeah, I don't man know, formerly, now, yeah. I feel, now I feel left out. Do you? Well, you can... Uh, we, we can congratulate you on your on your recent wedding eric if we haven't already have we congratulated you on air i think so maybe i thought oh. you were gonna congratulate me on not having a fred picker book oh okay <laughs> well, you can go and buy one see if you can get a fourth different version of it i'll, I'll try i'll try well how, uh, would you like to do your shout outs now there eric um well as always to my long-suffering partner and wife now wife crazy she said yes um heather 
and then you two gentlemen and Graham for coming on. Actually, it was really fun, Graham. I, I, I always appreciate our guests, but you in particular, I've sort of reignited my curiosity to, to try to make my own negatives, which Fantastic. plays into, yeah, you know, because I've made my own cameras, I make my own lenses, and it's always sort of a goal to like make everything from start to finish. I'm not normal that way. So, uh, so thank you for that. And of course, all of our listeners and, and community members, because you are fabulous. Okay, and uh, I, just to carry the theme on, I will I will thank my uh, well the, the the current Mrs. Forster uh, <laughs> of um, <laughs> she's 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 thirty four sorry thirty three years in on on that one as well, and so uh, do, doing doing well. She turned out well, um, and gave me two cups of tea uh, during this podcast as well. So uh, thank 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 you again for that. Um, I also want to do a shout out to Stig or Steve Starr, who I mentioned on the I think I gave him a shout out on the last episode, which was. Uh, about three weeks ago, um, because I did a, oh, yeah. a, photo, a photo walk and he was there, and um, and uh, and since since that that photo walk and since that podcast, he's now bought a large format camera. So uh, well, welcome to the club, Steve. Um, and uh, I was out with him last. Actually, was it last week? This week depends how you measure when the week starts. But uh, yeah, about about four days ago, um, I was out taking large format photos with Steve, and had a really enjoyable time. So uh, so there you go, um, uh, Eric. If people want if people want to get in touch with us, uh, what's the best way to do that? Oh, you cheeky bastard! Uh, large. <laughs> <laughs> Large format photography podcast at gmail.com. That's that's cool. And if people want to keep and keep on keep tabs on what the kind of things that you're doing, how can they do that? Uh, Instagram, pretty much. As as previously noted, my website is now years out of date. So it's just uh, E R I K H M A T H Y. And uh, Graham, we've uh, we've touched upon them a couple of times but uh, uh do you want to tell people about the best way to keep up with what you're doing which i think is instagram yeah instagram uh so i have the my photography page which is graham vasey uh photography and then there is also but i am working on the blog which is graham vasey at wordpress.com and hopefully be able to figure out my website to get that working again at graham uh, and you can also follow the film stuff on the Black Tor as well. So oh, yeah, that's it. There you go. And you can, yeah, uh, just also look at uh, gallerina.co.uk, which is the gallery that represents me. And they've always got a uh, usually quite an updated uh, gallery of my pictures on there as well. Excellent. And uh, same for you, Andrew. You can find me on the Twitter, on the Instagram, on the Facebook either by my name andrew bartram or warboys snapper um in any of those sort of various combinations will point you into those areas twitter is probably the easiest place to find me and then also um uh, every few weeks on the lensless podcast which is all things pinhole okay and uh i'm on twitter which again is probably the the, the best way to find me that's simon for that's s-i-m-o-n-f-o-r um 
I'm also on Threads. I've joined Threads, uh, trying to get away from the tyranny of Elon Musk. Um, but uh, <laughs> it is a tyranny it, of Mark Zuckerberg. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Out of the frying pan into the fire. I mean, yeah. We, it, what what world is it where we think that that fa- a Facebook run organization is better than another one? It, it's mm. I don't know. <laughs> right. um, did you not, Simon? Did you not get into the masturbate site? Mastodon, I think you went. Oh, Mastodon. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a slip that I think should never be deleted. <laughs> no, that's out there. We might have to put on the title now. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah. Um, and uh, oh, that's that. Strange enough, that's really thrown me. Um, uh, oh yeah, I've got a website. Um, Simon Simon Forster Photographic, where you can buy lots of lens caps. Um, and uh, and I'll make custom lens caps. So if you've got a lens cap for your large format camera, and uh, you would like me to make one for you, if you're able to take some really accurate measurements, and I mean like using calipers then there's a good chance I might be able to make them for you. So if you get in touch with me and say that you want them, um, mention that you listen to us on the Large form, large Format Photography Podcast, and I'll make you a custom cap for the equivalent price of a similarly-sized um, lens cap that I already sell rather than doing it at a special price, if you understand me. So, uh, so that's all good. So finally, um, you're listening to, at this moment... Um, Two Finger Johnny, uh, which is our theme music, uh, our outro music uh, by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. And that's it. So I hope you've enjoyed the, the show. And having done two shows in one month, you know, we're going to try and keep up uh, a bit of pace for the rest of the year. So hopefully we'll see you soon. So goodbye. Bye. Cheerio. Bye. Thank you very much.